Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world and the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week we're talking about the battle for Mosul. We will be talking about ISIS, whether this is the end game for ISIS, what it means for terrorism in Europe and what it means for the different European powers that have been involved in the Iraq war and those that weren't involved in the Iraq war. To help us make sense of all these issues, we're joined by two ECFR policy fellows who have just returned from Iraq. They are Haider Al-Khoi, who is a visiting fellow on ECFR's Middle East programme, and also the research director of the Centre for Shia Studies. And also by Ellie Garamaya, who is a policy fellow on ECFR's Middle East and North Africa programme, who has led our work on Iran and a lot of the regional conflicts that Iran is involved in. Why don't we go to the first, Heider? Why don't you tell us what's at stake, what the latest is about the discussions and set the, the fight that's going on for Mosul into a bigger context? Sure, Mark. I mean, Mosul is ISIS's last main uh, stronghold uh, in Iraq. It's Iraq's second largest uh, city. So the, the defeat would be both uh, a symbolic and a strategic victory uh, for the Iraqis. The problem is we have a, a very diverse group of uh, actors and fighters uh, involved. We have the Iraqi army, we have federal police, we have counter-terrorism forces, we have Kurdish Peshmerga, and to complicate this, uh, Turkish-backed Sunni paramilitaries, Iranian-backed Shia paramilitaries, and other local Sunni uh, paramilitaries involved. The good news is there is a military plan A, uh, and it's been agreed by all sides, and so far it's working uh, very well. And uh, we have to note we have come a long way uh, in Iraq, uh, especially given that the Iraqi federal troops and the Kurdish group troops are operating and coordinating uh, their efforts. And if we remember back to the former Prime Minister Maliki, we had a very tense standoff between these two uh, armies. Uh, but the problem is everyone has their own military plan B, uh, and it only takes one actor to make a wrong move or take a unilateral uh, action, and then plan A goes out of the window. Uh, and on top of this, uh, another problem is there is no real political plan uh, in place following the defeat uh, of ISIS. And on that note, I just want to say we should really manage our expectations uh, when we're talking about the military defeat of ISIS. They're not going to, to just vanish and go away. They will remain a very dangerous terrorist organization that will simply shift from the so-called state consolidation to emergency and terrorism. And, and as we saw very unfortunately this morning, they attacked the city of uh, Kokuk in Iraq. So as they continue to lose territory, I think we should expect them to mount more frequent attacks elsewhere, including uh, in Europe, to show their support that means a big hit to their prestige and near, you know, once invincible uh, state attacks to show their reach despite not controlling their territory. So tell us a bit more about how the battle is conducted, whose forces are in the uh, are in the ascendant, what is the Western contribution to the fight? So the campaign so far has been very successful. They've taken almost 30 villages and towns uh, to the east and south of Mosul. So the southern front, the Iraqi army, backed by uh, Shia paramilitaries, were working with the army. And from the eastern front, we have the Kurdish Peshmerga who are moving towards um, the 
U.S.-led uh, coalition providing credible intelligence. They have special forces on the ground. Uh, the French even have artillery units alongside uh, the Americans. So the, US, the U.S.-led coalition is helping, but it's being led by the Iraqi army in coordination uh, with the Kurdish uh, Peshmerga. We are uh, ahead schedule slightly, um, and things are going well. But of course, uh, as they're squeezed inside Mosul, it's going to be a very different type of warfare, much more urban, uh, and that's when the counterterrorism forces are going to play uh, uh, a leading role. Okay, so Ellie, it's a quite a wide range of, of different bedfellows there: the, the Shia forces, the Iraqi army, the U.S. Uh, Air Force, the forces that are on opposite sides of the theaters, like in Syria. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly a, a lot of groups um, positioning themselves in the fight of Mosul, but there is, uh, you know, as we do, uh, generals in a rebel from the Peshmerga forces and um, the um, and other senior actors there and both in Baghdad, there has been an agreement reached about which forces are actually going to go into the city. And again, this is the plan A that Hydra was referring to. And under that agreement, um, you know, the, the Hashid al-Shaab, which, you know, are a part of the state popular mobilization forces, but um, certain aspects of those group are um, under the influence of Iran. They, as far as we know, have agreed to stay on the in front lines, in the outskirts, and not go into the city uh, as a way to not provoke the Sunni population in Mosul. In turn, we've also got um, Turkish-backed uh, um, um, militia or paramilitary groups, depending on which way you're looking at it, also stations on the on the front line. Um, and this issue about actually the Turkish presence in Mosul has uh, really surfaced a international debate uh, with with Baghdad very much against their military presence. Um, and you know, from all conversations, the outlook on Turkey went from, depending on who you spoke to, went from you know this uh, current dispute between Turkey and that will be resolved diplomatically and quite quickly so as to not to distract the anti-ISIS um, efforts in Mosul. Others being deeply concerned that actually this is uh, a, a bid by Ankara to extend its um, influence and entrench its influence in, in uh, Iraq beyond the Mosul military operations. So I think, unfortunately, this has actually been a a dispute on the political level, as well, and also distracting the Americans and the Europeans, which is not very. Turks are only going to move their um, their backed militia groups into Mosul if um, the Iranian backed groups from the Hashid al Shabi go in. So it's almost as if they're balancing one another in this fight. Mosul, in this way, is reflecting how important Mosul has become in terms of the aftermath and what territories are carved between who it will almost um, almost give an indication of what direction the political track has created. And this is something that, you know, speaking with the Europeans this week and being in Paris yesterday, Haider and I were speaking to French officials, Americans and others on the sideline of the Paris conference on Iraq, which President Hollande um, called for. It's very clear that people are deeply worried about the political and the humanitarian um, issues that will arise out of this fight in Mosul. So, Heidler, how do you see that working out? Because it sounds like everyone's uh, united by their desire to get rid of ISIS. But what is actually going to happen when most falls? Is there going to be a, a new fight erupting between all of these different players? 
I mean, the answer is nobody knows. Um, uh, as Ali mentioned, ISIS has actually in some ways temporarily united many of the competing uh, factions um, uh, and rivals. And ISIS as a force has actually kept all the guns pointing in the same direction. Um, but after they are defeated, it's not just a Sunni, Shia, Kurdish uh, tension or conflict we need to be um, uh, wary of, but it actually makes it much more likely for there to be intra-sectarian and intra-ethnic uh, conflict between the Kurds themselves, who are not united on a number of issues, between the Shia eye-to-eye -eye on many of, especially the security um, uh, policy. And of course, the biggest concern uh, for Iraq will be the Sunni um, um, tensions and conflicts uh, uh, rising. And the, the question of what happens after Mosul, Baghdad and in Erbil, everyone, including the central government, say decentralization. It's a buzzword that everyone uses and everyone uses as a solution to not allow another ISIS uh, to emerge. But when you ask what? them, how does decentralization look like? Nobody has an answer. Will, will Nainawa province, of which Mosul is its capital, will Nainawa become a separate region or Kurdish region that remain within its current provincial number of different uh, provinces to accommodate the minority communities who also want their own semi-autonomous uh, governance? And when we talk about Mosul and Nainawa, we should uh, just note we are talking about Iraq's most diverse uh, um, province. It's not Shia, Azunis and Kurds. We have Turkmen, we have Christians, we have Shebek, we have Yazidis. None of these communities want to go back to the status uh, quo. But how they achieve their semi-autonomy um, is not clear. What, what we definitely know is these communities uh, want to protect themselves, that they all have armed uh, paramilitary groups that they want to use for local security to make sure another ISIS doesn't emerge uh, that then you know, launches a genocidal campaign against them. So the, the prospects uh, look uh, pretty bleak for now. And what happens to ISIS once um, they've been driven out of Mosul? Are they, where are they going to be located? And, and so the, they... Americans, the Americans and the Iraqi government have deliberately left open a corridor to the west of Mosul. And that's simply to give ISIS fighters another option other than fighting to the death. Um, so they're hoping that many of the ISIS uh, fighters will simply move across to the desert um, uh, west of Mosul and, and possibly... Um, uh, into Syria. And the reason for this is they want to minimize infrastructural damage and, of course, the loss of civilian life uh, in Mosul. Because post-ISIS Mosul stabilization is largely going to depend on how difficult it is for the Iraqis to retake um, uh, the city of Mosul itself. And can I maybe just um, add to that point? You know, people in, in Baghdad were very clear to us that Really, the fate of Iraq and Syria in some ways are tied together. And as long as the, the porous border with Syria um, remains an issue, uh, the security in Iraq is also going to be a, an issue of major challenge. And, you know, there's been a lot of thinking now being put into place of, OK, if we are giving this corridor of space for uh, ISIS fighters, particularly the foreign fighters, which are one of the more capable ones to go into Syria, uh, this is going to um, create quite a unknown uh, and potentially dangerous uh, prospect for the fight against ISIS in, in Syria. No one really knows uh, what they're going to be up to and doing um, on the other side of the border. Um, so yes, I mean, that's one issue. And another issue being that um, the idea that ISIS, because it has lost the territory, it will now step up its, um, you know, terrorism and insurgency activities inside Iraq. So people are gearing up for 
for much more um, terrorist activities, particularly in the big cities, the big urban cities like Baghdad. Okay. So, <clears throat> Heidi, you were saying that there's a, a, a big danger that actually this could be more rather than less terrorism in Europe. How does that work? Absolutely. Um, I mean, one of the biggest difference between ISIS and Al-Qaeda was this the, the issue of terrorism. Uh, the, the ISIS state is just an advanced um, uh, version of the insurgency uh, campaign. And it Al-Qaeda tells them you can consolidate because it will increase your enemies. So the loss of ISIS, the state in Iraq, will simply mean they become Al-Qaeda. Uh, they send clear messages to their enemies that we still have a long reach. We can still um, uh, conduct terrorist attacks across the world. Because we also have to remember the states of ISIS or the so-called uh, caliphate, it was a big matter of prestige for those uh, uh, jihadists. And it was what enabled them to, to attract many uh, fighters. So the loss of this, they will compensate through uh, terrorist attacks to simply say we are um, uh, relevant. Right. So um, why then are European countries pushing so hard? For it? So you, you think that it's worth um, uh, doing on its own basis because uh, of the lawless zones, because normally the link that people make is between sort of ungoverned spaces and terrorism in the West, and that if we don't regain control of these territory, they're training camps that will be used by ISIS and others. Because you actually think that um, uh, the more you close off the, the space in the country, it will have no effect on their effectiveness as a, as a kind of fighting force in Europe. Is that what you're saying? I mean, it's a tough question. ISIS as a state cannot be allowed to control territory anywhere in the world. Um, but all I'm saying is we should be more prepared for how they are going to lash out uh, and react to their loss of uh, uh, territory. I mean, I, I certainly believe uh, the international community must do everything to make sure uh, ISIS don't control any territories in either Iraq uh, or Syria. Um, but really, my argument was just to manage our own expectations. Many think the, the defeat of ISIS will simply mean the end, the, defeat, the military defeat of ISIS in Mosul will mean the end of uh, ISIS. And that's certainly uh, not the case. But of course, Europe and, and, and America in particular cannot afford to allow uh, any terrorist organization a stronghold over territory in which they can plan, prepare uh, and extort local uh, uh, populations. OK, Ellie, you've been thinking a lot about sort of regional dynamics in the Middle East. And it's obviously fiendishly complicated understanding all the different players and how they relate to each other in different in different fields um how, to what extent do you think they are kind of compartmentalized the fact that you have everybody united against isis in iraq does that have any effect on how people relate to each other in in, in other kind of theaters or or is it just something which um which is treated as a as a sort of marriage of convenience in one area and is perfectly compatible with fighting each other in in other spaces yeah, I think they have been compartmentalized so far, and part of that is because in Iraq, uh, broadly speaking, everyone in the region agrees uh, with Baghdad as the legitimate central government of the country. Um, in Syria, that's not the case. So you have this um, awkward situation where uh, the US-led and European-backed coalition uh, against ISIS is um, very much working with the central government in Baghdad, Prime Minister Abadi and his team to push for the anti-ISIS campaign in Iraq. But then in Syria, it seems to be uh, in pockets, certain pockets of the country where, where a full campaign is being led against ISIS. And part of that is because, you know, 
the, the US backed coalition can't work with the central government because there's this fundamental question over Assad. Uh, you also have behavior from the regional actors, also European allies in, in, in the region, uh, which, are, which are problematic, uh, to say the least, in terms of how they are supporting um, groups on the ground, opposition groups that in some ways have uh, joined forces with Al-Qaeda-affiliated groups. And this is, you know, a big question mark at the moment in terms of Aleppo and this corridor that's being created by the humanitarian cause. Um, and then you also have on the other side, let's not forget Yemen, um, which again is another mismatch where the regional actors are just uh, quite far apart in terms of who they agree is the, is, the, is the legitimate government, what actors are being supported. So I think Iraq, as we see it right now, is potentially the only success story um, in this tale of the region. And really, I mean, some of the thinking that Haider and I are doing at the moment for upcoming paper is for Europeans to realize that actually Iraq does present a opportunity, a rare one in this region where this chapter, after this ISIS chapter, there is more, um, there is more uh, welcomed, um, welcomed um, role for Europeans on the political track because I think everyone we spoke to, you know, from the Sunni community, the Shia and the Kurds, have you know really expressed that the last two years were a kind of awakening, quite a bleak one, uh, not only for the for the Shia and the, and the Kurdish communities, but also particularly for the Sunni communities who, after all, have had to live uh, under the rule of ISIS. Really. This is one area, I think, Iraq, where we can start to think about getting the politics right. Uh, we didn't really get it right in 2000, after the 2003 invasion, but now maybe a, a window of time to act before perhaps the, the fallout that we see, in, for example, in the Syria political track and in the uh, Yemen political track starts to taint uh, Iraq also. Actually, that's a, that's a crucial point. It was one of, I think, one of our main... Uh, findings, because European member states, and perhaps with the exception of, of the United Kingdom for very obvious and historical reasons, European member states don't have much baggage in Iraq. Um, and they're generally less fatigued when it comes to uh, dealing with the crisis in Iraq, now at least, uh, it seems. Um, and again, across the ethno-sectarian ethno spectrum, Europeans uh, enjoy a level of uh, credibility that I think can and should be harnessed to push forward uh, more subtle political uh, reform efforts. I think that the Germans in particular, we saw becoming uh, extremely active uh, in terms of their financial uh, and, and military uh, aid. But interestingly, there are concerns being raised in, in both Kurdistan and Baghdad that even German uh, support is in danger of being perceived as supporting one man and one party at the expense of, of other Kurds uh, and Iraqis. But the key point is this, Iraqis recognize, and they're very honest and candid about this, they recognize they cannot solve this crisis on their own. And I think this is where European member states can play a much more active role, you know, not just in throwing money uh, and weapons, but in pushing uh, reconciliation efforts and working uh, uh, more quietly. And I know this isn't a, you know, a, a quick fix where you can just send uh, a bunch of air jets and, and blow up a few targets. But in the long term, I think this will help uh, both Iraq and also address very important issues for Europeans now the questions on uh, uh, terrorism and, and migration. So subtle, soft power, political reconciliation uh, support. I think that, that's where the EU, can, the, not just the EU, but some European member states can play a much more active role uh, than the Americans. So you, you say that they don't have much um, by way of baggage, but what kind of leverage do they have, Ellie? I mean, 
compared to all the players who are who are regional, who've got a lot of skin in the game, I mean, why would anyone listen to what Europe has to say? I think one thing that came out was that uh, in Iraq, not having a track record is a good good thing in itself, which is uh, you know because the because the European member states particularly haven't really been involved in being seen as backing one one faction in the political quagmire of Iraq against another uh, since the fall of Saddam. That in itself um, has some positive uh, positive leverage that can you know that that, that can be with uh, because they will be able to have access to everybody uh, uh, unlike for example the Turks or the Iranians or, or the Americans secondly I think that it's not it's not actually about exerting leverage in the instance of Iraq because I think you now have a prime minister that is uh, quite open and reasonable to these issues of for example decentralization devolving power we heard over and over again that this is someone that you know the U- UN actions in in Iraq can work with the European um Rep said that you know the government is one that we think that we can work with on these issues in ways that we weren't able to say in in the early years after the after the American in, in invasion in Iraq in 2003. So I think that it's 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 about actually there is a openness to um, political uh, participation by Europeans, not in ways that it's seen to be. Um, dictating to the Iraqis and the various factions what they should do, but actually providing the toolkit and the know-how and a range of options for them in terms of how devolution of power can can work on a practical level, how the provision of security in these various provinces that are coming out of these uh, post-ISIS um, chapters can actually uh, work, what an agreement can be reached between local partners and Baghdad. So I think it's that. And also, actually, something that was reiterated to us, uh, you know, not just from the from people on the ground, but also the Americans, was that actually, look, the Europeans have a channel with a very important regional actor of Iraq, and that's Iran, Tehran. So is there a way for Europeans to actually um, have that more um, frequent shuttle diplomacy with Tehran when it comes to developments in Iraq, which really the Americans can't have or are restrained in doing so? Okay, so um, maybe to to bring this discussion to to an end, it would be kind of interesting to to hear how you see these things playing out over the the next few days and what you think um, is likely to to happen. And also, whether you think this is the kind of last battle of Mosul or whether this could just be a bit like Fallujah, something which gets retaken um, every, uh, uh, you know, every few months or or years, um, but uh, is part of a kind of ongoing crisis. Is this really a turning point or... Is this um, another step uh, along an endless battle against ISIS? I think on the on the actual military campaign for Mosul, we're going to see a steady advance to the city itself. But I mean, once once the Iraqi forces get to the city, uh, it's it's a different game altogether. The way ISIS have now uh, dug tunnels, barricaded streets, they're preparing for street by street, house to house fighting. And of course, we have ISIS have had two years. Um, to defend the city. So it could be a brutal campaign uh, that lasts um, uh, several months. But I'm actually, you know, perhaps to end on a more uh, positive and optimistic note, the local population and indeed Iraqi communities uh, um, are very tired of conflict and of war. And I think it's the local population in Mosul that will make it very hard for another ISIS or ISIS 2.0 or 3.0 uh, to emerge. They're going to try harder because it's them who have suffered uh, the most. We have 
you know, uh, almost 4 million internally displaced people. So when Ellie talks about uh, openness, I think we also need to mention there's, there's, there's more of an opportunity now. And this is where the Europeans can play a more uh, uh, positive role. OK, last word to you, Ellie. Yeah, maybe to, uh, I mean, I think one thing is that, and actually came out of our conversations also in Paris yesterday, is that Europeans, I think, need to recognize that Iraq can have a real direct impact on, on European internal interests as well, you know, as we've said, by way of issues of migration. I mean, the fears about the humanitarian um, humanitarian fallout from Mosul is increasing. Um, so it's very important to to step up the support internally to actors in Iraq to make sure that the IDPs um, are taken care of and also find a way back to their local communities uh, because that's one of the things that, that the UN is very much realizes this enormous challenge and you know, in Washington over the summer when there was the pledge conference, not all of those pledges have come through. And it's important for um, for for Europeans to, to be aware of that, that, that Iraq, unfortunately, although it's a very rich country that has huge amounts of resources, right now is is going through a very deep financial crisis for various reasons. And to, to restructure and rebuild Iraq is going to be a major effort. And really, it is we are if we if we want to have a role to play in Iraq, if we see that as important, we need to understand that we're talking medium to long term. It's not going to be a short term fix. It will require uh, a longer term commitment that actually some countries, for example, like Germany, seem to have uh, decided that they're going to make. Great. Okay. Well, <clears throat> we'll definitely uh, be checking back in again and seeing how how things develop over the over the short, medium, and longer term. Um, but thanks for a fascinating discussion. I'm glad you both came back um, in one piece from, from Iraq. Um, we have one more thing to do in this podcast, if, you, um, if you're up for it. Um, and that is our bookshelf segment. What, um, Ellie, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? Well, um, Mark, we actually, um, it is on my bookshelf. had a very inspirational group of um, uh, civil activists called uh, Iraqi Interfessal, um, and the, the lead of that organization, Dr. Saad Saloum, that book, um, inspirational work that some of these activists are doing on the, on the ground in Iraq under, under very, very difficult circumstances. So I'd like to highlight their, their role and their there. Okay, what about you, Bader? I mean, it's an it's a awful contrast, but the book I'm currently reading is uh, Street to Hell uh, by John Lefebvre, and it's a... Uh, a very candid and very sordid uh, insider's account of the serious world of international finance and how bankers behave both inside uh, and outside the office. It's, it's not the usual type of book I read, but it's the one I'm currently reading. Hey, and I would like to um, recommend something which is not yet out yet, um, based <laughs> on this study trip which they made to, to Iraq, which um, uh, based on our discussions so far, is going to be really, really interesting. So, that brings this podcast to, to an end. Thank you very much for listening. If you enjoyed, please do give us a ranking on iTunes or SoundCloud or Mixcloud or whatever platform it is you're using our podcast um, and uh, give us a rating too. It helps other people find it. And write comments on our Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash ECFR or our website. So you'll find links to all the publications that we've mentioned on that website. But for now, from Haida Akoli, Ellie Garen-Meyer, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. 
the researcher of ECFR's podcast is Olivia Franke and our editor is Katharina Botel-Azzinaro. Mm-hmm.